But then my PhD was, again, more towards just like computational mathematics. And I, I suppose in part, this is because, well, maths are easier. The grammatical rules that we have are somehow hard-coded into, well, into our DNA. You really wanted to imagine what four dimensions were like. I probably joked about it, well, it's just, you know, x1, x2, x3, x4, right? That, that, that's what it is. <laughs> I don't know what empathy is. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. Hey, this is Luis Work of the Work on Podcast. This is the 10th episode of the podcast. I would like to thank each one of my guests. All of you have been amazing. This episode is a conversation between me and one of my oldest friends, Daniel Raji. Daniel has a PhD in computational mathematics from the University of Edinburgh and is now a postdoctoral research of the Artificial Intelligence Group at the University of Cambridge. Here we talk about languages, learning, logic, human reasoning, and babies. Hope you enjoy it. Well, so what I was telling you is my wife, Zhigi, is uh, Lithuanian. Uh-huh. So the Lithuanian language is of the Indo-European family, but it's one of the most distant ones from the well-known ones, right? So it, it's not of any of the main branches. So the main branches of Indo-European are the descendants of Latin, uh-huh. the descendants of the old Germanic languages, the Slavic languages, and then there's Lithuanian, Lithuanian and Latvian. Are the ones of the? Oh, they are. They are apart from those. Those. Yeah, things? it's called the Baltic branch. Oh, okay. Do you know if any cognates from the those really far ones and are not the Germanic or Latin? What does cognate mean? Like words that kind of sound similar and may may have similar um, meanings, but probably they transform over time. Well, I think you can find many, many like that. Um, I think that. The branch that is most related is the Slavic branch. Mm-hmm. And so you can find many things that are a little bit similar to Slavic, but even to to the Latin languages. I mean, at least it's still Indo-European. It's not like uh, Finnish or Hungarian, uh, which are non-Indo-European. What is the, the root language of those two? Do you know? So it's not well known. Um, so th- there are three languages in that family. Um, Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian. Okay. They, I think they are called Finno-Ugaric languages. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. So I think it's from a branch of old European languages. Uh, it's just that 5,000 years ago, there were some migrations from the east into Europe. Mm-hmm. And these, but these people spoke these Indo-European languages. But they spoke probably Proto-Indo-European, so one, Proto- one particular language. And they replaced pretty much everything. And the only surviving non-Indo-European languages in Europe are those three and Basque. And the Basque language is non-Indo-European. It's not. I had no idea. I thought I thought it was going to be very close to, to Spanish. No. So the ones that are close to Spanish are Catalan and uh-huh. Galician. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. kind of funny. I, I was watching one of these um, guys on YouTube. He explains how they're able to reconstruct with certain amount of precision how, for example, accents. Uh, 
like two or three hundred years ago sounded like. And they say that it's by following uh, poems or how poetry will sound. Mm-hmm. With poems, they construct the rhymes, uh, how what two words will rhyme with each mm-hmm. other. So like, oh, these two words then will sound the same. That's and the, with association with other uh, other sounds, that's how they they will reconstruct the 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 accents of uh, a long time ago. So in in it seems mm-hmm. that probably in in the time of of Shakespeare, the English of Shakespeare will sound sort of similar to how the accent in the southern the U.S. sounds like uh, in Texas or in Georgia. That was, it sounds a little bit more like Anno Mellow. And, and then he was playing like a, a recording of how people in, in the countryside in, in the U.K. sound in certain parts in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're like, oh, wow, that sounds exactly like how like you would think yeah. a person in, in the southern U.S. would sound like. They, they actually pronounce R. Uh-huh. Whereas the posh British people do not pronounce R. <laughs> How is the accent in uh, you? You're in Cambridge right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. notice any any difference between Scotland and Cambridge? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, I mean Cambridge has the accent that is known to be British accent, uh, but actually it has a very po- posh uh, British accent, but it, but it's very very standard. Whereas Scotland, well, it has Scottish accent. So uh-huh. in Scotland, they pronounce the R's, they roll the R's. Yeah, no, it, it is very different. Uh, but of course, you know, I've lived in cities that are kind of university cities. And so uh-huh. that means that most people that you meet are not actually from here. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's people from all over the world. Do you notice any, anyone that is like has uh, English as a second language having... Um... North American accent. What do you mean, people from where? I don't know. For for example, like uh, some like I'm from Mexico. So if uh, someone like me that will go and study in the in the UK, say uh, that will have uh, an accent that will be more typical from North America. Yeah, it's it's only only the Latin Americans. Uh, yeah. Although, but that's not true actually, because yeah, most uh, Europeans that have English only as a second language. They have British accent, uh, uh-huh. but it's not entirely true because I think uh, TV has a big, yeah, uh, a big impact. And so, so yeah, I have a couple of friends from France, from Finland, that I notice that their accents are a little bit more like American. Because uh-huh. uh, here I had a friend, uh, one of my roommates. He was from Iran, but his accent was really like British. Uh, the way he pronounces everything was like kind of a posh British accent. Mm. Uh, so I found it very kind of curious. Like, how do you learn that <laughs> to speak like that? It is, it is kind of strange because it, here everybody tries to mimic or or that's the, the language, the, the accent that you adopt. It's, yeah. it's very influenced by TV and by the people around you. So everybody kind of speaks uh, in a North American way. But this guy was really, really posh uk accent i was found it really strange yeah so I, I wanted to ask you about uh, first well we studied mathematics in the same uh university and we took kind of different paths at some point even though we, it seemed to me that we liked the same kind of mathematics mm-hmm. when we were uh, back in, in our undergrad so i'm curious to know in what point we diverged and what led you to the path that you follow and mm. how how different you think it is from from what we were doing back then? 
Well, I mean, it, th- this was always supposed to be the case, I think. I, I don't know if you, if you had that impression, but I studied maths uh, because I thought maths were general enough that then I could do uh, what I really wanted to do, which yeah. was, you know, to, to understand the human mind. Now, I didn't come exactly into this path, uh, into like understanding the human mind uh, as my main uh, subject, because I did a master's in cognitive science, but then my PhD was, again, more towards just like computational mathematics. Okay. And I, I suppose in part, this is because, well, maths are easier, or as you in America would say, math is easier. <laughs> yeah, math is easier than the mind. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, this is a whole, a whole subject to, to talk about. The things like cognitive science, psychology are the hardest sciences, you would think, right? Yeah. Um, so you would expect that the, the most rigorous scientists are <laughs> here. Uh, but, well, that actually doesn't turn out to be the case, right? So psychology attracts many people who do not want to think rig- rigorously. Uh-huh. Attracts a, a quite a lot of people, I would think, because it seems to me that the program in, in, in psychology is really, really big. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, so, so I always wanted to you know, dedicate my academic life to studying the mind, uh, but I didn't know mm. exactly how. And my, my options were, well, you can study psychology, or you can study biology and you know, try to go into the path of like studying neurons mm-hmm. and what they do. Um, or you can study medicine and go into the psychiatry uh-huh. area. Or, or you can study mathematics and then go into it with a clearer <laughs> mind. <laughs> or at least that, that was yeah, my... Yeah, back then. Yeah. And so, yeah, I decided, okay, let's, let's do maths and... Uh, you know, in a way, it was a, it was a way for me to uh, postpone the decision. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I talked to some people that I know that suggested to me things like, yeah, study maths because, you know, we in neuroscience need uh-huh. mathematicians to model how neurons fire, or, or yeah, study maths because you can do algorithms and then that's similar to that you can do artificial intelligence to model human cognition or something like that. Um, yeah, so eventually that this is more like the path I took. So it's not, not, not the neuroscience path, not the try to model neurons, but more the try to simply understand what reasoning means. So you know, my PhD was in automated reasoning or applying... I'm combining logic and artificial intelligence to try to automate um, the processes of of rigorous reasoning, which is not the same as just as like human reasoning. Uh-huh. What is the difference between the two? Well, so the rigorous reasoning is just, you know, apply logical rules so that uh-huh. okay. if, if you have an inference, then it can be guaranteed to be correct. So if you start with certain assumptions and reach a certain conclusion, you can guarantee that this is a theorem, uh, but that these assumptions imply this conclusion. Uh-huh. So, you know, in a, in a sense, this is prescriptive reasoning rather than descriptive. 
because I could have tried to study descriptive reasoning, like how do humans reason? Okay. But instead, prescriptive is like, well, what's the correct way of reasoning? Uh-huh. And logic is like that, right? Like, okay, let, let, let's just go into a little philosophical tangent. Um, well, how were you taught linguistics or language when you were a child? I don't know. I, I would think that um, I would think that there's at some point certain need to understand in a in a child. Well, I don't know if, if that's in a child, but I see, at least I see in my dog that sometimes I, he has a need to understand me when I'm asking him to do something. And after certain repetition and and uh, the feedback that I give him, like either I respond the way he wants me to respond, or I don't, then he learns how to how to manifest his desires. Or how to interpret what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would believe that I, I did probably something very similar to that. Yeah. So I guess you're saying something like that. Your your linguistic abilities were emergent out of many motivations, let's say. Yeah. Um, and probably, but quite a lot of hard coded stuff that you have on on how to, you know, how to break out break down sounds and how to group sounds together and stuff uh-huh. like that. Um, so you developed grammar simply by listening and the structure of grammar sort of emerged in your, in your brain. But then when you were in school, you were probably taught grammar. Yeah. But what you were taught, was that descriptive or was that prescriptive? It might have been more prescriptive. It generally is, right? So they tell you, well, this is, this is how you should form sentences. And actually there are wrong ways of forming sentences, right? And if you break the grammatical rules and it's not an accepted exception, then uh, it's incorrect. But so, you know, the, in ling- linguistics, I think, has always had uh, this kind of two competing sides. One of them is, okay, let's study language as it happens in the world. Uh-huh. Uh, so let's study how humans develop language, how societies well, um, evolve language, how language evolves out of need how language self-corrects or decays um, and stuff like that. But then, you know, there's another side of it, which is, are you speaking correctly? Right? Are, are, you, are you forming your sentences in the, in the right way? Uh-huh. And the right way, who knows exactly what it is, right? We, we sometimes pretend that we know what the right way is. Now, I, th- I think there is a right way, right? And it has to do with conveying information, being able to convey information. Um, okay, so that's about language. So now my analogy with logic is that, you know, you can try to understand how humans reason, and that's one aspect of logic, but it's kind of cognitive science and psychology, right? And then on the other hand, you have, well, what is correct reasoning? Okay. And that's, that's actually more what we typically consider logic. Uh-huh. So me studying logic is going a little bit on the prescriptive path rather than the descriptive path of, of human of human reasoning. So I, I think um, going back to um, to your analogy in in, in language and uh, how do we develop kind of these grammatical rules? Uh, do we just observe what's being used and try to abstract away? Uh, I don't know the patterns uh, that we that we use usually. We don't know, right? We we don't know. I think you know we all agree that there's there's an innate part of it, uh-huh. but it's not clear what it is. 
because another thing that we all agree on is that there's a, a part that is sort of more arbitrary. It just depends on the culture you were yes. brought up. And so, you know, I think Chomsky was uh, the first one to come up with the idea that the grammatical rules uh, that we have are somehow hard-coded into, well, into our DNA, right? Okay. Uh-huh. So that they are innate. Because all languages have sort of the same parts of the sentence. Mm-hmm. Though there are, I think the Chomsky school of thought says that there are kind of like switches. So let's say you, you already have innately some slots for what, what, are, what should go into the verb container, what should go into the noun container, what should go into the adjective container, etc. Oh, okay. And the way you uh, develop language is by uh, sort of figuring out like whether some switch is up or down or well, whether the verb comes before the noun or whether the adjective comes before the noun, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's something where there's usually a difference between languages. And so babies, when they are learning language, they don't need to... They don't need to figure out the whole structure. They just need to figure out like which is which uh-huh. and where to put them. But they already have the categories. Uh-huh. Oh. That's kind of the idea. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know where that school of thought has gone. Uh, I think you know Chomsky now has his, his own version of it. Uh, what I told you is just an analogy of what he actually uh, formulated. Yeah. That probably makes, I mean, it is compatible with a, a few things that I've been, I was thinking I do with my, with my dog when I try to teach him something. There is a switch inside myself that wants, wants me to communicate with him in a certain way. For example, he knows the word no, and he knows the word eat when I, I allow him to eat. So when I tell him no eat, I expect him to, to, to wait or leave it. I expect him to kind of abstract away to for, to generalize that idea yeah. when I when I and, already know he understands a few things. Yeah, and it's interesting that you that you mentioned no as as an example because you know I, I have two very small children uh-huh. and uh, so Darius right now is in the stage where he's learning uh, to speak and you know I've noticed many patterns that that I think must be innate and one is no. One is that there must be something that means something like stop uh-huh. and that you just have to figure out how to trigger it and how to make the child or dog associate uh, the word no with that trigger. With stopping. Uh-huh. Yeah, I noticed that he actually stops when, uh, when he hears the word no. And I don't know if he understands what no means, but he definitely stops himself from doing what he's doing. Yeah. And Darius now, I think that's that's one of his best understood concepts. <laughs> um, and he actually sometimes gets very offended if you say no about something, like don't, don't do this, do not do this. And he becomes sad. Yeah. Does he get very um, kind of disappointed or desperate when you say no like several times? It depends on his mood. Yeah, he can get really disappointed. Uh, but sometimes he's just in a mood that he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Because my, my dog, at some point when I tell him not not this, and then he goes into something else and I tell him not do that, at, at some point he <laughs> gets very frustrated and doesn't know what to do. Uh-huh. He goes in his sadness mode. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I find that kind of cute. 
but it's it's strange that dogs are able i, I mean uh, certain animals are able to communicate like in a very efficient way with humans yeah yeah so to a certain degree it's it's the same right like what you're triggering in the dog is the same as what you're triggering on the human yeah we're we're a bit more complex <laughs> do you get to understand a little bit more about your own research or the area of um, of your area of study by having to educate your kids? Uh, I don't think yet. <laughs> Not yet. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly learning or getting at least good intuitions on how humans develop. But no, I don't think I don't think you could say that I've that my research has in any way benefited from <laughs> from me having children. But at, at least kind of your understanding of. Uh... Oh, I saw this theory in uh, some part of the literature, and I see him developing that side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Chomsky comes to mind. Mm, the other, Skinner, comes to mind. So Skinner is a psychologist who developed, I think, what's called now behavioralism. Okay. Which is, it's just the the very simple idea that you can condition someone into... So, for example, that you can condition through rewards and punishment oh, uh-huh. to certain behaviors. Right? So you, you punish certain behaviors, you reward certain behaviors, and you get uh, an animal or a human that Beh- behaves according. Uh-huh. According to the prescribed rules. Yeah. And, I mean, Skinner did uh, experiments with pigeons, with mice, and with dogs. I don't know, I don't know if he did experiments with dogs, but... You know that you get the idea. I mean, it's it's something that anyone who has owned a dog or raised a kid knows. It's just he studied it in a more rigorous, methodical manner. Uh-huh. So you always, in your mind, was always your idea of studying the human mind. So you started studying mathematics. Was there any point where you were probably doubting that uh, I'm probably just going to doing uh, combinatorics or geometry? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I have always been doubting everything. I've always doubt. I mean, I, I'm still doubting. I don't know what my uh, future holds in terms of uh, research or work. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm, I'm always doubting. Uh, yeah, I don't think I ever thought I would be a researcher in combinatorics or geometry. You know, I thought may- maybe I would be a researcher in logic. Okay. Well, so you, you asked... Um, where did we diverge? Yeah, yeah. And that that's probably a point where in practice we diverged. You know, even though my, my answer was that this was always in the making, uh-huh. that I always had my plan to diverge. But in practice, while we were studying maths, I think that's a point where you could say we diverged because I don't think you were that interested in logic and those kinds of things, were you? No, I think at some point... At- developed some sort of curiosity about them but not not to the point to say i want to do it full-time right yeah um, definitely i mean I, I read get a leisure back by your recommendation and i think that was a book that changed my perspective into logic and my understanding of it mm-hmm. so i always respected it i was like very curious about it but thinking that i'll try to go into uh, researching it i it, i don't think it was in me uh, mm-hmm. Probably because um, I don't think it was, I, I was good enough at it. 
like it, there is many people in in our university that were very into into logic and and formal uh mathematics and i thought that was not my i have said that was not my forte you like I, I probably will do better in someone doing something mm-hmm. else yeah well and uh, for example you you did more abstract algebra yeah. and more number theory yeah right? for example number theory i i didn't go very deep so yeah that, that's where we that's where we diverged. Diverged. yeah yeah it was also kind of enlightening uh, that at some point I realized that for the longest time I was lying to myself, thinking that I had good geometrical imagination. And for the longest time, I always tried to approach mathematics with a geometrical mind. And it was until uh, I think it started starting with, with your dad, uh, more deep algebra, I realized no, <laughs> geometry is not helping me and it is definitely hurting my my progress. That's funny because I mean, you, you will probably remember this, but when you were starting to study mathematics, so you, you were probably 18 and I was probably 19, you were telling me that you, you wanted, you, you really wanted to imagine what four dimensions yeah. <laughs> were like. But I think I, I probably joked about it, well, it's just, you know, x1, x2, x3, x4, <laughs> uh, in brackets, right? That, that, that's what it is. <laughs> that's how you imagine it. But you you wanted to force your geometric intuitions, yeah. right? And I mean, we, we had conversations uh, about it, right, that, that were more than just this, but like, of course, you have, for example, the analogy that 3D is to 2D, as 4D right. is to 3D. That's one important analogy to, to understand higher dimensions, etc. But yeah, I, I remember you trying you, you trying very hard to... To force my you know, geometric to, imagination to understand yeah. something that is probably not in the capabilities of a human mind. Yeah. Yeah, so... I wanted to ask you, like, is there like a pattern of thought that you observe in yourself saying when you think about problems, do you think like in a more, I don't know, in, in patterns or or is there any any pattern that you observe in, in, in your mind? Well, I suppose you're asking this because you, you said that you think geometrically or that you, you try to appro- approach problems geometrically, even though you know, now you know that this is not your yeah. thing, right? Like, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think I totally uh, see that in myself also. I'm, I'm definitely not a geometrist, but I I always, always try to get things to, you know, to create diagrams in my mind of how things work. And if these diagrams can be geometric, so if, like, size means something... Something, so be it. The more of these intuitions that, you know, have meaning, the better, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I do try to imagine visually things, but in the end, it's a mess, right? Like, the mind is a is a complete mystery and yeah. a mess. And, well, insights often come, you know, after you worked on something very hard without success, but then your mind is filled with it and then you sleep and you kind of dream of it. And it's a very messy process. Right? Yeah. It is kind of curious how in research you see sometimes certain topics that are ideas that have been evolving uh, through the years. Like in some paper appears, the idea appears in a very messy and very rough manner. 
and then in this in the next iteration of that paper or of of that line of research the same idea appears but in a much more developed way and i think our own personal research is is kind of the same sometimes we, we have some like very messy idea probably some um intuition of how things should work and we tried to write it down but it's, it's completely a mess because we don't understand it really yeah but somehow somehow th- things start kind of clicking with yeah. years of just looking staring at the same thing and yeah. uh, finally you get something nice yeah it often happens that you you keep keep building something that is is becoming increasingly more unworkable <laughs> when the, every time you add so you need to account for something else and so you add something to it and your intuitions just i don't know your your mind becomes like much harder to well, like a very complex, heavy tool that now has too many pieces to carry. And so the problem seems like unworkable at this point. And then you have to sort of reassess everything. Yeah. But often, often this process is necessary, right? Like you, you need to keep making it messier and messier and messier yeah. until, until you figure out that actually it's quite simple if you just exchange <laughs> yeah. your perspective yeah. completely. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of every time you make it messier, you try to... And probably create associations between two different concepts that at some point were not related in your mind from the beginning at all. And when you see the association, you kind of feel stupid. Like, oh, this was here all the time. Uh, I should have seen it from the beginning. And the final iteration of your understanding is very simple and it makes you feel dumb. <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, took, yeah. it took no, a while. This is common, right? That the, the final so- solution or the final theory is like, too simple and you're you feel like, oh my god I, I worked so long for this <laughs> uh, but yeah the, the search space was large right yeah. and the fact that your solution is kind of shallow that that just tells you that the search space was you know that it had like an enormous breadth yeah yeah it's, it's an mp complete problem as the joke will say yeah so what what's your research on right now can you tell us a little bit more specific or can you yeah, so, dumb it down? <laughs> but no, I don't have to dumb it down. I'm working on like how you would uh, transform between some language that is traditional, such as like formal mathematics as we know it, uh-huh. and say diagrams and figures. So I'm studying like what's going on there in, in between. So is, is there a, a morphism or something like that between the sentences and um, diagrams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in essence, I'm, I'm working on a kind of logic that includes visual things. And in, in principle, it includes auditory representations or okay. whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But some of the ideas are simple, right? Like, for example, in when you have a, a sentence in formal logic, it can usually be decomposed into a tree. It's a rooted tree. So the the individual symbols are the leaves of this tree, you know, like X and Y and plus, right? So these these three symbols uh, can be the the leaves, and then the combination of them A plus B mm-hmm. is you know, a, a node sort of of higher abstraction than the individual symbols. And so sentences in logic are are usually like that. And in in, in all the so in natural language they are also trees, right? So you have these things called parse trees. 
That's how you parse a sentence. Mm -hmm. you, you divide it in these parts, and these parts get divided in these smaller parts until you get to the bottom, which are the leaves. But that's not necessarily the case uh, when you, what you have is a geometric figure. Mm. Right? So when you, what you have is a geometric figure, if you focus on, say, the intersection of two regions or something like that, or the intersection of two lines, then what's the best way to understand what's going on here? I think you, know, you, you can think of it in terms of sort of like parsed trees, but they are not trees, so like parsed graphs, because the same region, for example, can be used twice, like... Say you have like a Venn diagram, right? So these three... Three circles. Three uh, circles with an intersection. The way you can obtain one of the regions in there, so suppose it's a, it's a region that contains the intersection of A and B, but it also contains the parts of C that are neither in A nor in B. Right? So that region, you can obtain it in many ways, right? Like doing these operations of intersection, union, complement, etc. You can obtain a region like that in many ways. And the process of obtaining one of these regions can be seen as a graph, right? Uh -huh. As a directed graph. So that you start with uh, the intersection of A and B, and then you, from that node, you move into taking off a part of C or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. exactly. And so what I'm trying to do right now is to study, for example, how uh, the parse trees of a sentential reasoning system can be mapped to these more complex parse directed okay. graphs. How is that model called? Does it have any name? Uh. Well, it's it's our model, so... It, oh, okay. Yeah. So w one of the ideas of our research, although that, that's not exactly my part in this, uh, but one of the ideas is that this can be turned into a tool, into a computational tool that transforms sentences into diagrams and, for example, can be used by students trying to learn something. If they, if they get stuck, they can be suggested different representations. Oh, okay, okay. Uh -huh. What are the things that, that to the model should be added to encompass all the different ways of thinking that a student may have when trying to, to use a potential tool like that? Or do you think it's possible to encompass well, every, every possible way of thinking? Probably not. Well, so let's try to think, what, what does a uh -huh. good teacher do? A, a good teacher, in a way, creates a model of the student's mind and tries to figure out where the student is failing and tries to you know, give, for example, problems that are just, just a little bit outside of the student's reach, but not too far that uh -huh. they are hopeless. So first of all, a, a good teacher needs to know very well the subject. Yeah. Right? That, that's, a, that's the most important factor. But then they need to they need to be patient, right? They need things like this. They need to be patient. They need to uh, to have experience with students so that they can model a student's mind more or less uh -huh. in many different ways, right? Because there's probably many different ways that the student can be stuck. Yeah, exactly. So that that, that yeah. comes from experience. Um, you know, a good teacher usually has all of this knowledge as just intuitions, right? Like the teacher usually will probably not be able to tell you, uh, will, will not be able to communicate the model mm -hmm. of a student's mind, right? But will have the intuitions for, you know, what, what is the student missing? Yeah. And what kind of question would help the student uh, get through? But a lot of it has nothing to do with the student and it's just that the teacher should be, should, should have a very broad and deep understanding of the subject and 
and then the curriculum should be a kind of plausible thing, right? Like you, you don't start by things that cannot be understood by the students. You start by what they can understand and build up from there. So anyway, the point I'm making is that you, you need a lot of curriculum building. So most of the thought on, on how to improve student learning, I think, is curriculum building. So by that you mean uh, how to construct a structure where the basics can be enough for the next layer of knowledge and that layer is enough for the next layer yeah. of knowledge. Yeah. And I mean, all undergraduate degrees have these uh, this structure is yeah. quite well thought, right? And there are disagreements on faculty often will disagree on what comes first because, you know, there, there are some people who will tell you, well, first, if you want to be able to reason, you have to learn category theory, right? Because <laughs> everything, be everything is, can be modeled right. by category theory. So, so really what you want to learn is category theory. And the other, the other researcher will tell you, no, what you need to learn is set, set theory, right? And this has to be the first course. And others will tell you, well, no, <laughs> you, need to, you, know, you need to learn things like number theory without the need for uh, knowing how to inject number theory into mm-hmm. set theory, right? Uh, you can do that later. And actually, well, you should do that later. That, that, I, I do think it's kind of a foundational aspect of, of mathematics that you can inject pretty much everything into set theory. But don't start with set theory. Anyway, so curriculum building is a subject that I think there's lots of disagreement, but we we all do agree that it is important to have the right setup for students. And one of the things I'm saying about uh, the goal of my curriculum, sorry, the goal of my uh, research, as as it was written in the proposal, that we would build a tool uh, for teaching mathematics to students and that uses multiple representations and whatnot, then we would need to be thinking all the time about curriculum uh-huh. and these kinds of things. So kind of trying to tie this with uh, our previous conversation, do you think curriculum forges or molds uh, ways of thinking? Like, do you think it is that your current way of thinking, the current way you reason is forged or very heavily influenced by the way that you were taught or the things that you were taught in what order more than your natural I don't know, instinct or or what what do you think it's so i think it facilitates it uh, so a good curriculum and a good ordering of curriculum facilitates learning but i don't think it determines it in any in any way and like really good students for them it doesn't matter that much right for really good students, I think curriculum matters less mm-hmm. than for struggling mm-hmm. students. And it's certainly possible to ruin everything with a bad curriculum, mm-hmm. right? So like, you could have bad curriculum and bad teachers, and, and then the students are doomed. But above a certain point that I think you know, is reached probably in many uh, universities, in many departments all over the world, above a, that point, the good students will always do well and get like a a little path to the to the top and that's very important right to provide a path for good students to well, to excel to to find out that they are good students yeah. in the first place and then you know to be able to well find their place find their place in society whether it's uh, for a job or in research 
or whatnot. But then it is hard to reconcile um, a curriculum for the good student and then a curriculum for the average student, especially because I think the number of average students is a lot more than the number of good students, uh, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's why we do need a sort of uh, segregation of good and bad students, right? Mm -hmm. And I think most of it is accomplished through assessment. Assessment is really important because then you can, you know, push good students up. You, you have to be able to assess students properly so that you can filter mm -hmm. the good ones and, you know, let them through uh, and push them to the top. And, you know, definitely once, it, once you've figured that out, then you can sort of segregate between good students and bad students. And that definitely has to be done. Uh, and the causes of like what makes bad students bad and what makes good uh -huh. students good uh, are, let's say, a bit mysterious. <laughs> and it's dangerous territory, yeah. right? But uh, you talk about these things. Uh, Probably in a way you have to give every student the same, you know, options and freedom to choose with some degree of advice into, well, probably uh, this advanced, very advanced course of math is uh, perhaps not for you. You can, you're able or free to try it, but don't be disappointed if you fail. This is probably better for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's a delicate yeah. conversation, I think. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh... Do you, do you want to go on there? <laughs> Let's go on there. <laughs> yeah, so th there are people out there who think if only we educate everyone with the best that we have in education, then everyone will be great and everyone will excel. But that's clearly, clearly not correct. I don't know what your intuitions are about this, uh, but I think it's pr pretty clear that that's not correct. Yeah, uh, I think I probably have very few reference points to address. But I can see, for example, me and my girlfriend, we perceive mathematics in a very different way and education in a very different way. And even though she pursued a career in mathematics, her intuitions or her like uh, desires are not adequate for the expectations that many professors in our university would probably have. So I can see that she's capable of doing it, but she's not happy about when when she has to take courses, right? And you you see the one when it's like said, okay, I can solve this problem, but that will take that will imply a lot of pain in my day, and that will imply a lot of unhappiness. And and I, I don't think that she's out of the norm. I think that's a very normal pattern in in many students. Yeah. And I yeah. think, if, for example, in in our university. The group of good students is very is, is very huge, so the average student is actually pretty good. So if in this university people are struggling, I can imagine that in your average university, your average college, like the majority of people will be struggling with uh, the way yeah. that the education is being, I don't know, outlined or students are expected to learn. Yeah, but so what would you think uh, needs to change about this? I, I don't know. It's just just. That's a good question because um, first, I think the expectation on a on a person to, you know, these, these are your options and you have to fit in one of those probably could be less rigorous or like a, 
let's fix yeah. for example like the modern trend it's a trend to convince convince a whole bunch of girls to pursue careers in the stem right and mm -hmm. it is great if it's if that's that's their thing if they, that's what they love and it is great to see them as succeeding in that but trying to push someone into doing something that they perhaps don't want to do just because you want to show the world that they are capable of doing it i don't think that's that's very productive because it, you you yeah so that that could be counterproductive yeah indeed. because you can be capable of doing yeah. something but that doesn't mean that you are happy doing it right yeah well so as far as i know this is actually what uh, research shows into what sex mm -hmm. differences that at the end of high school both so girls and boys are equally good at things like math uh, they they do more or less the same in like standardized tests, uh, so for example, for uh, university admissions, if you make them do that test. Mm -hmm. But girls often decide that that's not what gives them pleasure, right? Like that, that's not what satisfies them in life. And, you know, I, I don't know how, how true it, this is, but it certainly rings sort of true that many times it is a case that male students when they finish high school they have fewer options because they are more lost mm -hmm. and so but in a sense the fact that they have fewer options just tells them okay you you have to study maths because you did well in maths and there's nothing else you can do whereas girls that do well in maths tend also to be uh, good in other mm -hmm. areas and actually they prefer things that are like mm -hmm. more human so they tend to go more into if we're talking about sciences into biology psychology or social sciences whereas boys that do well in maths often don't do very well in other things or at least yeah i think i think it's often that that it's it sort of seems like the the obvious option and it's not that painful to be uh, sort of socially mm -hmm. isolated <laughs> in a way uh, i don't know i you know there there are jobs like customer service, right, where, where you have to be interacting with people all the time. And I don't know about you, but every time I have to make a phone call, I'm like anxious and I, I really don't want to yeah, make that phone yeah. call. And there are people who, whose job yeah. is this. Uh, so I'm happier thinking stuff in isolation or even thinking stuff with someone else, but sort it's sort of like a, a distant world that you have to put your mind in. So there are differences between uh, girls and boys that probably make boys study mathematics and engineering more than girls, even though in the tests they do more or less equally well. But do you think it is? Well, I think it is because probably the trend, the, the way of thinking a, a few years ago was that they don't go into that path. They don't pursue STEM careers uh, because they're not capable of doing it. But I, I don't think, I mean, I don't think a few years ago people thought that. I think a lot of years yeah, ago yeah. Uh -huh. people thought that. Yeah. And so le le let's even go there. Let's, let's assume that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that we should be too concerned uh, about the, the empirical question or too, too upset about the, the possibility that there are things that one sex is better than the other, uh, on average, right? But we should not be too no, it, upset. I think if if, if there is a truth in in it, which 
I mean, we, we can probably state examples that are rather dumb uh, to just exemplify that. Well, there are things where girls are better than boys at doing. Uh, girls are better at uh, what? what Multitasking. No, even, even, some, even something dumber. Uh, boys are better at peeing standing than girls are. They're just, just, they're oh, just going, yeah, yeah, going yeah. to the, something undeniable. By better, you mean we hit the target? <laughs> I mean, but better, uh, we mean that it is, it is in the physiology <laughs> to, to, to do that. And what would you say? Girls are better at growing boobs than boys are, even though there, there might be boys with big boobs. In general, girls are better at that. Yeah. So that, that kind of... Yeah, they, they have a <laughs> talent for that. That kind of exemplifies the non-emptiness of things that some sex is better and than than the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I th I think it's uh, naive to assume that the differences in that and yeah, yeah, that that they are all the differences are just yeah. shallow, right? That they don't go into the brain. The differences. Yeah, obviously there must be differences in how the brain works. Right? Yeah, there are there are differences even between how my brain works today and how it worked yesterday and how it works when I'm sad. I, you can perceive it. Yeah, but on, on average, average, the question is whether on average the brains of males work differently and the brains of uh, females independently of the culture where they were brought up. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think it's the, the reason why my brain works different in different states of, of, uh, of my life is because in some states I had I know I was subject to certain hormones or certain changes in my physiology that made my brain work differently. And if our physiologies of men and female work different, then it is naive to think that their brains will work the same. Even if your first person experience will tell you that your brain works different in different stages of the day. Yeah. Do, do you know the extreme male brain theory of autism? No, I don't know that theory. <laughs> well, so autistic people have a very peculiar way of thinking, right? And they are, for example, generally less interested in people. They are less, less capable of perceiving mm -hmm. emotions. And that is actually more or less what distinguishes the behavior of males and the behavior of females. So males in general are more mm -hmm. autistic, right? So they, they have more behaviors that are more like in the autistic spectrum. And so I think that there's some evidence for the theory that the brains of people with autism were affected by testosterone in utero. Oh, okay. That their levels of testosterone in, in the uterus was quite high of the mother affects the development of the brain of the uh -huh. child. And so I think they, they have found that in autistic or, or people with more uh, autistic traits, there was more, more testosterone in uterine. That probably makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But that excess of, um, of testosterone in the uterus probably doesn't have anything to do with uh, the gender of the, uh, of the person, right? I think it has to do with the gender of the baby, but it's a, it's a relative uh, difference uh -huh. to average. Okay. So 
how much more testosterone is in utero compared to other babies of the uh -huh. same gender. Right? Do you know of any difference between the percentage of people with uh, certain traits of uh, autism between males and females? Males and females? That's a very good question because um, there, are, there are a couple of ways to answer that. One is more males are diagnosed. Okay. And the reason females seem to go underdiagnosed is because they are more functional. Uh, uh -huh. Kind of balances out. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if the curves of male and female on certain traits, well, on the spectrum are like this, yeah. then the most autistic uh, females are just like slightly autistic males. Uh -huh. And so for females, they are uh, quite odd, but they still function. Uh, so they are not all the way all the way in, in, on the, ah, I see. Well, to, the, to the tail of the spectrum. Yeah, the, the tail on the, on the male side is a lot thicker than the female side. There's an interesting series on Netflix, um, Love on the Spectrum. It's a reality show of people with autism that are trying to find partners. <laughs> that must be very interesting. It must re yeah. remind me of certain yeah. times. Sometimes I think I do have certain traits of autism. Uh, but at the same time, I've noticed that I have tried to uh, change the way I feel about certain things. For example, uh, as you said, uh, you hate doing, or probably not hate, but you don't like doing phone calls. And I also don't like it. But I noticed that when I do it, I try to go in this mindset of I'm going to be uh, fluent and I'm going to be agreeable and to be just, I'm going to try to enjoy it. And once the, the process starts going, I do get in the mood of enjoying the phone call. But that was not always the case. And it's kind of been a, a process. So I wonder if this sort of rehabilitation uh, of many people just go through this rehabilitation process and they become less autistic with time. Yeah, or, or at least more functional. You, you find ways around certain behaviors. So for example, people with autism, I think often the... The treatment for for them is to to find kind of ways for them to work around mm -hmm. their their issues. And one is they they train them how to recognize emotions, right? So recognizing emotions is innate for most of us, right? We don't need to be told this is what sadness looks like. But people with autism, especially people in more severe places of the spectrum, they need to be trained in that. So they do not recognize emotions. But it actually works to train them. So, you know, but you have to tell them explicitly, like, do you notice how the mouth is sort of, uh, like, down? Do you notice the tears? <laughs> well, that's a sign of sadness. Do, do they train them with other people or do they train them to recognize their own feelings as well? I don't know. Actually, that's a good question, whether whether they only... Because I know they, that they train with other people. They, they train... Uh -huh with like pictures and stuff like that. But I don't know if they they are trained to sort of map their own uh -huh. experiences onto other people, because I think that that's more or less what's innate, right? Like when you see someone sad, it actually feels like sadness to you. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything like mirror neurons or is that just like popular science? Yeah, I th so there are these neurons that fire both when you cry uh -huh. And when you see someone crying, uh, but I think they have been overhyped uh -huh. 
because if you think about it, isn't it obvious that there should be something like neurons that fire when you run and when you see someone running? Mm-hmm. But I, I guess it depends, like when, like how you see it. I, I don't think it's overhyped in the sense that it is a cool uh, discovery to have to made. find out. Uh-huh. But but yeah, it, it's, but it's probably not the like complete a, answer a, to empathy. No, but you know, probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what empathy is, but <laughs> yeah, is that that you've mentioned it is that uh, like lately I've been watching uh, the Formula One, and when I started like I got very into it for like a couple of days, and then I went uh, to drive, and I noticed my brain like being more aware of what the other cars were, and kind of enjoying driving more. And you wanted to overtake everyone? Not, not really. I I was just kind of. Uh, because probably my driving training was uh, very centered on being calm, but at the same time, it, it was kind of the first time I noticed my brain very aware of where the other cars were and trying to look at everything and not being distracted because usually when you start driving for a while, then you get distracted with the, uh, talking to someone or thinking about something else and then you're going kind of autopilot. But mm-hmm. that day... Like everything went back to to when I started driving, and like all this this perception of of the of the road was was unusual, let's say. So perhaps when you do a certain task, your brain starts uh, I don't know firing into the task that you've been doing, or uh, it's, yeah. it's more easily fired into the task that you've been doing in other in in other circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I retract my statement that it's hyped because it is a, a fascinating phenomenon uh-huh. that uh, that we're always sort of experiencing everything from many perspectives, uh-huh. right? Um, that, you know, when, when you yourself are driving, you also have a third-person perspective on what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's right. As if you were looking at yourself. And when you see someone driving, you also have a first-person perspective as if you were the one driving. Uh-huh. Right? So, so that that is the, a fascinating phenomenon. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we quite understand it. Well, I don't. So <laughs> let me speak for myself. I, I don't. I I find it very interesting, but I, I don't understand it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated to understand the mind. So that's probably why you decided to go into that field. Yeah. Daniel, I think it's been an hour and a half, <laughs> almost. Uh, it doesn't feel like it. No, it doesn't. Uh, uh, thank you very much for doing this doing this with me. My pleasure. Uh, and I think we should do more of this, even even if it's not recorded. It's... Yeah, I, I miss talking to you. I mean, because I think I've seen myself many times uh, referring to the philosophical conversation that I had with you and how you always challenge my preconceptions and even though at, at the time I felt very emotional and I tried to discuss with you why you were wrong uh, the the fact that we had the discussion uh, made me I don't know mature in a as a person and in mentally it was pretty nice do you have an example of that I do I do yeah. uh, for example something that I referred recently um, to one of my friends is when you we talk about music and how for you if you realize that your favorite piece of music was composed by 
uh, an AI, you will not feel different because the composition itself or the the song itself was good enough. And for me at the time, I was like, no, if, if it's fake, then I don't like it. But I don't know, it's kind of trying to think of uh, that difference. Like, what difference does it make if this uh, thing that I enjoy was made by a computer or by a human? Just going into that, just trying to answer that question for myself, that makes makes the process more interesting and makes you mature it's as a, mm -hmm. in your understanding. So. But, but so now I see the 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 other aspect yeah. of it, right? Because when when you're when you're watching someone perform music, for example, you're also identifying with the person, yes. uh -huh. and you're using the person as a role mm -hmm. model, right? And well, role models are important. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why uh, when you go into a concert and you see the the artist performing the song that you enjoy usually, even though the, the performance itself is, is often not as good as how you can listen to in the album, the connection that you have is a lot stronger. Yeah. So it's, concerts are important <laughs> for your enjoyment of, of a song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, still, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, yeah, we, yes. we should... thank you for for inviting me into this. And I mean, I I really enjoyed it, and I think I would enjoy having more conversations like this. That's for sure. <laughs> well, yeah.